Having studied monetary policy for several years, it was only natural that your podcaster spent considerable time contemplating the essential elements of fiction. Some experts say there are five components to it. Others put the tally at six, even eight. But at the core, it has always been the three elements, plot, setting, character. Plot was perfected, in the Western tradition at least, in the late 16th century by Shakespeare with the five-act dramatic structure. Setting, given short shrift for millennia, did not achieve co-equal status until the Gothic novels of the mid-18th century. And character? Scholars point back 28 centuries to the Iliad. Heroism, cowardice, pride, hubris, wrath. But the scholars are wrong. Character wasn't perfected first, but last. Not until the 1980s action drama The A-Team did this element of fiction reach its zenith. The American television masterpiece synthesized what the great books dared not imagine into the now classic quartet. Colonel John Hannibal Smith as the brains, Lieutenant Templeton Faceman Peck as the looks, Sergeant Bosco Barracus the muscle, Captain H.M. Murdoch the wild card. The casting blueprint can be observed most everywhere in the arts, at the office, even at the family dinner table. Central banking is no exception. In the role of the brains is Ben Hannibal Bernanke. The looks, Lady Lagarde. The muscle, J. Mad Dog Powell. The wild card, the audience will naturally point to Haruhiku Kuroda. And before January 28th, the audience would have been correct. But on that day, Isabel Schnabel, member of the executive board of the European Central Bank, gave a speech extolling the virtues of the sovereign bank corporate nexus. That is, technocrats speak for the government-guaranteed private bank loans to private enterprise. Schnabel endorsed these crucial national loan schemes and encouraged Europe's capitals to continue them, warning any premature end would be destabilizing. Put another way, the baton that represents the supervision of money creation has been wrested away from Frankfurt and placed into the neatly manicured hands of politicians seeking re-election. The new wildcard is not Isabel Schnabel, but the Euro Area Member State, all 19 of them. In this episode, we touch upon 1980s television shows like Chips and interbank clearing mechanisms like Chips. Also. Why are corporate elephants on the hunt for fast-moving gazelle enterprises? Why are these elephants being offered their own fiefdoms in Nevada? And lastly, a potpourri review of Jeff Snyder's recent writing. Airwolf, Magnum P.I., The A-Team, Simon & Simon, Chips, a collection of some of the greatest television dramas, the height of Western culture, yes and no, yes for Obvious reasons, no, because this is making sense. A Eurodollar University project with Jeff Snyder, head of global research at Alhambra Partners. And therefore, CHIPS is not about Eric Lestrada and Larry Wilcox. It's not about wearing shirts that are one size too small. And those, those birch, what are the breeches, tan breeches with the brown leather patches that are also way too tight that no self-respecting California Highway Patrolman would wear outside of Hollywood. No, CHIPS is about the clearinghouse interbank payment system. Jeff, why are we talking about the clearinghouse interbank payment system? 
Well, I think we should talk about not just the height of Western culture in those shows, but also the theme songs, right? Oh, I think that's yes. what most people remember most about those shows. Wasn't I couldn't I couldn't tell you the the, the first episode of or any episode, recall any episode plotline from Chips or the A Team, but I sure know the theme song by heart, right? And it doesn't Night take- Rider. Did I mention Night Rider? Night Rider, yeah, that's another good one. Mm. Back when uh, back when theme songs were, were were as important as the show themselves, maybe even more important than. And I think that's kind of the uh, the idea here is that you know we know that we know the the initial cursory background forward facing parts of some of these systems, but do we remember or do we call or do we even know what really goes on in them or behind them or you know the details and all that other stuff? And I think that's where it really becomes interesting when you start thinking about. What the hell is chips? What is Fedwire? What is Swift? I mean, people talk about Swift and they think about the dollar system. What actually does Swift do? Um, we know the theme song, but we don't really know the episodes. And so we're going to tie it back to present day and why all of those messaging, bank messaging and payment systems matter. And we're going to start with a story much like some of the shows that we mentioned with something happening in the 1980s, something going wrong at the bank. Bank of New York. What happened November 20th? I should have looked up what show was playing on November 20th, 1985. But what happened other than what wasn't on television? 1985, Bank of New York was a regular day, except for if you were in the back office, uh, if you were one of the computer programs or one of the many clerks that, that, that is assigned to look at the computers and settle treasury trades, it was probably the worst day of your entire career. Uh, essentially a software glitch. And I, I mean, they specify, there's all sorts of these stories about what the software glitch is, and I don't really understand much about it. But anyway, it was a heavy volume day in treasuries in 1985, as you might imagine, if you know what was going on in November 85. And the Bank of New York found itself trying to process 32,000 trades, which, I mean, today that's, that's a microsecond worth of transactions. But back then, that was quite a lot. And so it has tripped up the computer system, and that caused also a chain reaction, which led to Bear Stearns drawing from the discount window a then record amount. And you wonder, well, how does how does a software glitch end up with Bear Stearns essentially being bailed out by the Federal Reserve? Well, it has something to do with uh, the timing of all these things in a daylight overdraft, and that's going to be important part of our story is what happens during the day, because you'll explain to us that, uh, you know, at the morning, everything is settled. And at the end of the day, everything is settled. But during the day, things it's are a not Wild settled. West free for all, essentially, That's right? right. That's it right. Is, so, tell us about well, that overdraft and why Bank of New York was, I think what happened was that they were extending credit, right? They were not getting the cash in. You, you tell us. Yeah, and it's, it's almost like, um, you know, we talk about quarter-end window dressing. We pay attention when banks report. Mm. And so they the report as quarter-end. and What goes on during the quarter? Who the hell knows? And it's the same thing day-to-day. You know, everybody knows what everybody's done the day before. So we, we know what everybody is at the open. And then we know because there's reporting at the close, when everything gets settled out and shaken out, we know what everything happens at the end of the day. But what goes on in between is sort of, you know, a big guesswork mystery. And the reason is you know, we have these automated systems. It's t- and going back to the Bank of New York, November of 1985, what this software glitch did was it made it, it, made it impossible for, Bear, for Bank of New York 
to reconcile treasury trades. So customers called up their, their Bank of New York and said, look, I'm buying a treasury from whoever else, go into the marketplace and buy it for us. And Bank of New York arranges, you know, the broker arranges the, the buyers and sellers together. And Bank of New York actually clears the buyers and sellers, you know, exchanges cash for securities because Bank of New York was one of the primary four bank, four primary back office uh, custodians at that time. They, they were in charge of settling and clearing all of these treasury transactions. Now, because of the market uses a DVP system, which is delivery versus payment, what that means is, when the seller gives his treasuries to Bank of New York to then forward on to the buyer, the seller receives his cash from Bank of New York's account. When Bank of New York has no problem doing it because, you know, computer software and everything else being what it is, they, they imagine I'm going to find the buyer at the other end at the same time. And so I'm lending credit to the seller and I'll get, I'll get the funds back from the buyer and I'll, you know, make a little bit of a, a couple pennies on the transaction along the way. But the software glitch prevented Bank of New York from matching seller to buyer. So all of these trades were selling treasuries, which meant Bank of New York kept fronting more and more and more, crediting more of these sellers' accounts, but it wasn't getting any money coming in because it couldn't find the buyers. Now, we knew the buyers weren't, you know, they didn't disappear. It's just the software couldn't trace their accounts and figure out who do I need to deduct funds from. And so by the, you know, the middle of the day, not the software glitch had, I think it was something like 20 billion by four o'clock. That's how much Bear Stearns had extended in, what, as, you appoint, as you mentioned, Emil, uh, 20 billion in a daylight overdraft, which daylight simply means during the day. They were, sh they were extending 20 billion in credit they didn't have. So, you know, and $20 billion in 1985 <laughs> yeah. is, is a lot of money. It, it, well, Specifically, you said that uh, so by two o'clock in your in your article. Yeah, by two o'clock is twenty, and it, they started to fix some of the software issues and started to reconcile the database and get things moving. And so by the end of the day, I think it was eight o'clock at night, or maybe a little bit later, they were short of twenty, up to thirty billion. I think it was at the That's maximum. Right. And they started settling some. They got some buyers. Yeah, at eight thirty, they were short thirty billion, and you said right. it's a thirty-two thousand trade car pile up that they're sorting through worth 20 billion at two o'clock by eight o'clock 830 had grown to 30 billion and at 230 in the morning they had gotten it down to 22.6 billion and as you mentioned here 22.6 billion is your typical amount in a chips episode for like a ransom but it's also worth one and a half times the book value of the bank of new york yeah. So, I mean, it was a major thing, massive thing. And by, you know, as you, you know, eight o'clock is already after the settlement, uh, final settlement the, the, uh, times. And so, you know, Bank of New York was already being given special dispensation to try to work out its, its um, work, work, work out its, its custodial and settling issues. And that, that extended all the way to two thirty in the morning, which by then, it wasn't just Bank of New York who had extended intraday credit to customers. Because Bank of New York didn't have those funds, it was actually the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, which had ultimately the liability for what was going on, because this is all done during, uh, using the Fedwire system, which the Federal Reserve stands behind and says, we're going to guarantee all payments and processes there. So essentially, the, this wasn't just a problem for Bank of New York. It was a problem for the Federal Reserve, because all of a sudden, late at night, they're getting phone calls from, 
you know, counterparties trying to settle the Bank of New York's and they're hearing noises that the Bank of New York can't even settle its own trades intraday, daylight overdrafts that are $30 billion in 1985. I mean, I can't imagine the, uh, the uh, amount of sweat pouring out of, you know, Gerald Corrigan's uh, forehead, who was the president of Federal Reserve Bank of New York, realizing that what was likely to happen would be that Bank of New York, one of the you know, most basic, most fundamental pieces of the uh, entire financial system was going to have to go on the books at the discount window, borrowing about $23 billion. And what would that do to the rest of the uh, financial system? I think it's an important moment here to point out that it's the complexity of the system that puts everyone at risk, right? Bank of New York, fine bank. But it's so complex that something goes wrong. And as you mentioned, Corrigan realized, well, if Bank of New York goes down, no big deal. No, Bank of New York is networked, interconnected with everyone. And that could bring down the system. And he mentioned, quote, during because he testified in front of Congress. Yeah, Congress as you got involved. I mean, this was a, and people don't know. I mean, I'm sure most people have never heard of this episode, but this was a another one of those things that goes on in the in the shadows and in the in the, you know the plumbing issues that you know, people who do pay attention said, oh my God, what the hell just happened? This is a big deal. And Corrigan said, the result was a backup in the willingness and ability of some other market participants to transfer securities amongst themselves. All of a sudden they said, we don't like what's going on in this system, even though we have nothing to do with it, but we're connected to the system and therefore we're stepping back. And you can see how this could cascade and it's foreshadowing how we're going to link it to present day. But instead of talking about present day, let's go all the way back to 1918, the Fedwire. You introduce us to the Fedwire, to Telex, which is kind of a European, well, they're different, right? One's a messaging system, one's a wiring, or maybe they're the same. Then you introduce us to Swift. Can you sort of uh, just tell us that history of what these systems were trying to accomplish, and then where chips comes into this story. Well, it's essentially a story about how money moves, right? Mm -hmm. I think most people will think when they think of the banking system, and we're taught to think of them as individual banks, right? We have an individual bank, it has its customers, and therefore that bank, really all it has to worry about is managing payments for, you know, managing uh, liquidity needs for its customers. When the truth is, going all the way back to the 19th century, this interbank Way, manage, way of managing the payment processing system has been, you know, one of the key factors driving banking evolution, banking, uh, the, 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 um, the ability of the monetary and banking system to create a national then an international economy. It all goes back to the efficiency of money to move around from one place to another so that real economy participants can do real economy things without having to worry about, oh, do I have to ship gold across the country? Do I have to write a check? You know, if, 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 I'm, if I'm selling goods to a customer in California, do I have to wait for the check to clear? I mean, does it, you know, I mean, there's all sorts of inefficiencies and frictions that arise from these, these payment issues. And Fedwire in 1918 was introduced to simply to start to, you know, to smooth out and make more efficient these uh, payment requests because it allowed at least the Federal Reserve branches to send instantaneous, instantaneous messages between each other, which said, hey, my bank over here in my branch needs payment from your bank over there in your branch, so send me the funds. So at least if we can get the banks talking in real time, then we have a much more efficient system because we can settle all these payment needs and move money around 
all over the place, which is really what a modern economy needs. It needs money to flow around. It needs to be fluid as well as efficient. And so these interbank payment systems were created so that could happen. And one of the, the key, uh, the key um, factors spurring even further growth in it, leading up to chips and SWIFT, was this thing called Euro dollar. And the fact that this, this, this dollar-based interbank payment system was no longer strictly an American thing. It, was, it suddenly became a global issue such that, you know, the telex system was in its way, in its day, it was a, it was a very innovative system. But you got to remember that it started in the 1930s, which was essentially what we think of today as text messages. So that's really all the telex system was, was an, it was an internet of, of text messages. And we were trying to send funds between accounts and different banks there's no real standardized format. And it also comes out on a piece of paper. You have to have a human read, essentially a text message. You can see there's limitations in how much, uh, how many payment requests and how many messages can be processed. And I believe it was said that it took about 10 telex messages just to create, just to make sure that we're accurate. We know exactly the details of what's trying to happen. And so given all these limitations, moving into the modern digital age using computers, these interbank processing systems began to be automated. But the, you know, in order to be automated, what you have to have is standardized messaging. Uh, and that's really all SWIFT was, was a consortium of a lot of banks around the world that got together and said, let's standardize our messaging protocol so all it takes is one message so that the sender and receiver both know exactly what needs to be done. And that's really all SWIFT is. SWIFT is not a payment system. It's a messaging system. It's a standardized messaging system for U.S. dollars, for global banks all over the world. I believe there's 8,500 or so members participating in it today so that they can send and receive messages from each other saying, look, I have a customer that's sending dollars to you. I'm going to forward them to your account, your Nostra, your Nostra account, so you can put them on behalf of your customer. It's really... SWIFT is the, where the, where the uh, interbank system begins, not where it ends and not its totality. And of course, then we get into things like CHIPS. Now, CHIPS is actually sort of a, comp a competitor to Fedwire, but it's also a messaging system. And it's also more, uh, uh, it's, it's, it's a focus more so on international dollar trade. I believe, I think it was 90 or 95% of all U.S. dollar interbank settlement takes place across the CHIPS system. So it's it's you have to be able to you have to have, you have to have an ability for banks to talk to each other to tell them you know what are our customers doing what are we doing with each other you know if I'm getting if I'm engaging in a repo trade for example how are we going to settle that how are we going to move funds how are we going to net funds out and remember that's that's the other part of this is not just two banks talking to each other it's 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 every bank talking to every other bank and so you have thousands upon thousands if not millions of potential transactions that if you had to settle them one at a time, each bank dealing with each bank on a bilateral basis, it would require an enormous amount of float because you'd have to have so much cash and reserve to, to settle each and every claim. It's so much more elegant to net them out, to have a way to everybody throw their claims into a pot in a central cleared pot and just decide, okay, I'm going to net out this one against this one and this one against this one. And we'll just decide at the end of the day who owes what. Sort of like settling up at the end of a poker game. You know, how, many, how much chips do you have at the end of the day? So you're owed what, however what. And that's really all chips is. It's a way for all of this stuff to be netted out and settled so that we don't have to have a massive amount of cash and reserves tied up in float. And I think it was said that 
for every hundred dollars in gross transactions demanded using essential the, the, the these gross net essential systems you only need a dollar in reserves <laughs> because it's so easy just to net out counterclaims now but this is a fabulous system but it requires that each participant behaves in a certain manner otherwise if they don't meet the requirements then the system could could what cascade apart and fall apart and so here you explain that beginning at 9 p.m the night before each morning's deadline uh, which is at 9 a.m every chips user must deliver via fedwire its opening position requirement to the chips account at the federal reserve bank of new york this is pre-calculated and no bank can send or receive payment requests until further funds are obtained. So you, you know the night before how much money you have to send by 9 a.m. and then you can participate in the system. And then there at the end of the day at uh, five o'clock, uh, what they figure out what the total netting is and perhaps a few hours later, you have to send money or you will receive money. Is that right, Jeff? Yeah, it's, it's actually more, more elegant than that because they actually net transactions during the day. Mm -hmm. So while all, this, all these messages are being transmitted back and forth, the, the algorithm, the chip's algorithm actually nets out as many transactions as it can during the day. And so you have the ability, at least in the modern system, to in real time manage your liquidity profile. So you have an idea when you get to the end of the day, what are you actually going to need to put up because at five o'clock, Chip says no more messages. Interbank trading is done. So all the payment messages cease. And then any messages that haven't been netted out previous to that, then they start to bilateral net or multilaterally net everything else and then tally up your closing reserve requirement, which basically says by six o'clock, you got to put money into, if you're negative, if you have more payment requests than uh, funds coming into you, you're going to have to, assuming it goes beyond whatever reserve you put up in the morning, you're going to have to put up more funds into the CHIPS account at Federal Reserve Bank of New York via Fedwire. And same thing on the other end. If you end up having more payments coming into you than are leaving, then you have a positive closing number, which means that CHIPS are going to send to you via Fedwire funds that you're owed. And so at the beginning of the day and the end of the day, the CHIPS account at Federal Reserve Bank of New York is zero. It always ends up in zero. But as you pointed out, Emil, during the day, these banks are essentially extending credit in real terms and in virtual terms too, because every payer is essentially saying, look, I'm depending upon you to lend me intraday credit because these funds, it, you know, theoretically don't get, don't get settled into the end of the day. So during the day, I'm expecting you to send me send me cash at the end of the day through the chip system, but during the day, I might let customers use funds that they're anticipated coming in. I might do also all sorts of other things. So during the day, as we talked about in the Bank of New York example, there's all sorts of credit being, intraday credit being extended that isn't really tracked. Now, I, don't want to, I want to make clear that the chip system, like the Fedwire system, has lots of risk controls in place to make sure that something like the Bank of New York episode doesn't happen again. There's position limits and extension limits, but they, and they do their best to monitor the levels of potential daylight, daylight overdrafts. But this, the, the, that kind of thing has the, you know, it has behavioral aspects to it. As we talked about before, look, 
if I'm way overextended, I'm getting further and further overextended in you know payment requests that I didn't anticipate, that's going to cause me to do some other things. It may, as uh, one Fed paper, uh, Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago paper said, negative externalities, where in certain cases, not wanting to go to the Federal Reserve to have to borrow funds to settle at the end of the day, we might delay payment messages on the other side, the counterparty who's originating the message. And what that means is we're introducing frictions into the payment system. And obviously, we're going to ask the counterparty to do that because I'm giving them something, usually collateral, by the way, so that they, so that they don't present for payment immediately whatever message through the chip system. So there are frictions that come about from overnight drafts and daylight credit that are induced because of the fact that this stuff needs to take place sort of in the dark or sort of in the day during the day when we don't really we don't really have a, a systemic or overall sense of what's going on. And you mentioned collateral there, uh, and that's an important part of this paper is that the you say that the Federal Reserve and regulators are kind of looking at the system from the point of systemic failure, should it occur? And they're looking at banks. Like if a bank would go down, how do we prevent that from radiating out through the liquidity pond here? But you mentioned, well, okay, so say a bank needs to make good on the funds that's being drawn on, it may have to go out and secure funding. And how would it do that? With collateral. And they're not looking at that, are there? the collateral. Like if we had a Bank of New York situation today, they would have to go get collateral for funding. Where would they get that? That I think and yeah, then let's, you let's explain that a little bit more detail. Um so at the end of the day, you've 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 net chips is netted out and you owe a bunch of cash because you know for whatever reasons your bank's customers had spent a lot of money and now now you're you're being, you know, their their cash is moving to another bank and that other bank is saying, I need those funds because customers have transferred the funds. And so at the end of the day, you've got an unanticipated withdrawal and it's more than the amount of reserves that you put up at the beginning of the day, which means you have to settle this deficit and you have to do it immediately. I mean, this has to be done immediately. And what the Federal Reserve expects that you're going to do that one of three ways. You're going to go into the, you're going to borrow the funds in the federal funds market, which is unsecured. You're going to go into repo and borrow the funds in repo, or you're going to go to the discount window and borrow the funds as Bank of New York did from the Federal Reserve, largely the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, but it could be one of the twelve other, one of the eleven other Federal Reserve branches. In other words, if you're deficient at the end of any single day, you have money markets or the Federal Reserve to 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 uh, obtain cash such that you can settle up, transfer those funds via Fedwire to the chips account, and so chips stays neutral at the end of every day. But that you know, we know what Federal Funds has done since August of 2007. It's no longer really a marketplace. Tell us a little bit more, just a minute, because maybe we haven't discussed that in a recent episode. So federal yeah, funds sorry. used to be very active, but now? Yes, federal funds used to be a very dependable, vibrant, dynamic marketplace where these things, you know, if you were short at the end of the day, you had no problem. You were a bank in good standing, good reputation. Because federal funds is unsecured, you could contact whoever it was and say, look, I need to borrow some funds from you because I'm short. I have a daylight overdraft that I need to cover. And that would be easy to arrange. But beginning in August of 2007, August 9th, 2007, the unsecured markets, especially federal funds, essentially broke down. 
And so since that time, there really isn't much money in there. There isn't really much trading in there. It's really mostly GSEs who have spare cash who are prevented from using IOER. So there really isn't that option anymore. And even if there was, as you know, you go into the federal funds market on an unsecured basis, I'm not sure you'd get a good enough rate, especially if you're going into the federal funds market saying, I have a daylight overdraft that's more than I anticipated. I don't know how many people are going to jump all over the chance to lend you unsecured. So federal funds is out. Jeff, let me just quickly interrupt. It's not there that money isn't there because before 2000, August 9th, 2007, banks believed in growing their balance sheets and globalization in a world of return. But after that, they they believe in deglobalization, a world of risk. And because this is an unsecured market after what they saw happen in 2008, they don't want to put themselves at risk. Is that right? Yeah, it's an unnecessary risk, right? Instead, you can go to repo. Yeah. So if you can't do it unsecured, then borrow in secured markets, which means you go into the repo market, you post collateral, they give you cash, you then transfer the funds via Fedwire to chips, and everybody's happy, except if you don't have collateral. If you don't have collateral, you're not really sure you can get collateral, then you're not going to be wanting to put yourself in a situation where you may not, where you may end up with an unanticipated daylight overdraft because you're not certain you could settle in a repo. And if you can't settle in a repo, what do you have to do? You're at the Federal Reserve's discount window, which is now called primary credit, and that's a death sentence. That's that's Why the, is it a death sentence? Because the, the the stigma associated with the discount window had become so because, and ironically, it's because of the federal funds market. Because you could go into the marketplace and obtain funds that you were short of to, to settle on a daily basis, what the market said was, if you have to go to the discount window, that means that the marketplace has already said it doesn't want you. And so if you're at the discount window, that's your last resort. And the market is then going to look at you funny because it says, you have no other options except the discount window. Nobody's going to lend to you because we don't know what really is going on there. Right, and they'll start withdrawing yeah, funds from you over you the coming were, days. Exactly. So a the, bank the stigma run, associated with run. primary credit is essentially a death sentence. And so you really can't go to the discount window except in exceptional circumstances like Bank of New York did in 1985 when they could say, well, this is just a computer error. Right, right. So if you have any operational con- problems that arise and you're stuck at the discount window le- uh, trying to borrow large sums of money, that's really not an option for you either. And another thing we need to keep in mind too is who are we really talking about here? We're not talking about Lehman Brothers or even JP Morgan or even back in New York Mellon as it's known nowadays because those banks are flush with excess reserves. That's where the bank reserves come in from the Federal Reserve's quantitative easing. Those banks have enormous balances of of excess reserves. They're never going to have to worry about a daylight overdraft or if they're extending daylight overdrafts because they have all the bank reserves they could ever need to settle up at the end of the day because it's already bank reserves. It's easily transferred via Fedwire into the Bank of New York, Federal Reserve Bank of New York on the behalf of CHIPS. And so it's not the big dealer banks that are short of cash. It's everybody else. That's really when we get into this idea of abundant reserves, as, as it's being called, as it's been called since 2008, what do we really mean when we say abundant reserves? What it means is that systemically it looks like they're abundant reserves, but they are not evenly distributed, are they? In fact, they're actually concentrated into a very small number of players 
that doesn't actually, at, at times like September of 2019, for example, the dealers might say, well, we've got abundant reserves. We don't know what the hell's going on with the rest of you people because you can't post collateral and repo. So we're not going to extend these. We're not going to extend these abundant reserves of the repo market because why the hell would we? Right. And so what we're really talking about is there is more monetary considerations that go way beyond the Federal Reserve, even Fedwire and, and bank reserves. Why are potentially interbank counterparties outside of those primary dealers, mostly, especially these uh, global participants of banks around the world who have subsidiaries in the United States that are participating in chips as non-settling members. They have all the sorts of potential for running short of liquidity where in the modern post-2008 post you know, global dollar shortage situation, they would react harshly to even the probability of being short on the at the end of us and, and at the end of a day's settlement, especially if they're concerned about collateral availability, which is a completely other story that we just won't have time to get into here. But suffice to say, what we're what we're really talking about is the complicated nature of these systems, and that there's opportunities for all sorts of illiquid behavior, negative externalities to, to impose themselves on the monetary system on a just a daily basis. And that you believe that that best explains the nuts and bolts of what happened in September 2019, the repo issue. You think right. If you're a dealer, if you say you're JP Morgan, for example, the, the, the repo issue wasn't you. You weren't the one who was short of cash because you, again, you have abundant reserves. You can make any, any liquidity shortfall you have. You just transfer the, the funds in your bank reserves to whatever, you know, to through, through Fedwire to, to chips. But if you see, okay, there's a lot of my non-settling member counterparties are starting to, to uh, build up daylight overdrafts, which you can kind of monitor during the day. And they're, they're having trouble going into repo, right? Because they're going into repo because they can't go into Fed funds. And that starts driving the repo rate higher because there's so many of these people running into repo at the same time. You wonder what's going on here. Why are all these people desperately trying to do, again, avoid using primary credit or the discount window that they're borrowing so heavily in the repo market to avoid having a situation where they're short at the end of the day and they can't settle up at chips or Fedwire or anyplace else? Because it's not just chips and Fedwire. There's also all these exchanges like the Chicago Exchange, ICE, all these financial markets where you could possibly, where daylight overdrafts could possibly arise and you have to settle somehow there too. So what we're really saying is it's not the big banks that are short of liquidity. It's the big banks who, when everybody else is short of liquidity, don't offer it to the rest of the system like they're supposed to. That's really what money dealers are supposed to do. And the reason, one reason is, is that the system does not work the way it used to. It's not as dependable and fluid and liquid, despite the fact that there are abundant bank reserves, because abundant bank reserves don't tell us the entire story. There's just too much risk out there that they don't want to take. Uh, let me yeah, just... It's, it's, exactly. I mean, it's as much a behavioral change as it is anything to do with... It's balance sheet changes, right? It's, and balance sheets are governed by a lot by perception of risk and behavior, but it, you know, balance sheet capacities and the way things are, way opportunities are potentially viewed in a risk-adjusted uh, scenario post two thousand eight is not the same as it used to be. And so, going back to our original story here, the payment system, liquidity. What do these things actually mean? It's fluidity and efficiency across a global economy. 
And if we start introducing frictions, even tiny frictions that we can't really observe, what does that do to commerce in general? It slows it down. And it slows it down in such a way that it, it, it's, it's noticeable, even if we don't notice what it is that's actually slowing it down. And that's, I think, the, the overriding point here is that this, you know, the focus on illiquidity is if we don't have a Lehman Brothers, then the system must be liquid. And it's not that that's not the case. There's gradation. There's all sorts of, of, you know, a whole spectrum of illiquid behavior that can build up over time. And it's not necessarily just that when we see the most extreme outbreaks of these things, that's the only time that the, the system is illiquid. There are all sorts of minute ways that these things pile up and it does cause a drag on real economic activity. It's a lack of confidence that the banks have in their central banker to be able to backstop the system based on recent experience. And so despite yeah, and the central... I think it's worth going into even a step further. I didn't go into it's... the articles. If you don't want to go to primary credit and the Federal Reserve knows you can't go to primary credit, then you have to wait for the central banker to offer you liquidity. And that's really what happened in late 2007 is that, okay, the banks couldn't go to the discount window, even though the Fed changed the uh, formula for primary credit that reduced the penalty rate by 50 basis points. Banks still said, we're not going because this is a death sentence. And so we have to wait for Ben Bernanke to get off his butt and start offering TAF auctions and dollar swaps. That's not a situation you want to be in either. My entire existence depends upon, okay, I can't go to the discount window. I can't go to repo. Now I got to wait for a TAF auction. And oh, by the way, TAF auctions are determined by bureaucracies, which means they're fixed allotment or fixed rate or whatever. It's, it's, a, it's a bureaucrat offering liquidity to a system that needs dynamic. So it's really not a substitute either. And that's really a bad situation to be in. I think that's one of the reasons why it was a systemic rupture in 2007, 2008, was because even on an interday basis, banks realized, oh my God, federal funds is dead. Repo's now a problem. I have no backstop in the Federal Reserve. I got to wait for them to do a TAF auction. I need to cut back. I need to change how I manage my money dealing activities right down to the ground because operationally, these risks have built up that we didn't think were there. They're now being proved as completely big. I mean, I don't want to be the next Bear Stearns. And you would think had that been the end of it, about half a generation has passed, we might be able to move forward. But as you often write in your uh, at your blog post at Alhambra Partners, this is, that was episode one. Then we had episode two in Europe, then episode three in Asia, and episode four most recently. So it just keeps happening. We need some sort of new paradigm, a new social contract, a new institutional order. Uh, Jeff, is there anything that we didn't cover in this article that you wanted to mention before we move forward? No, it's, it's really just, look, this is a very complicated system. And what we're taught is that it's not. That the Federal Reserve pushes a button, prints some money, and voila, the world just works the way it's supposed to. And it's really, and it's not about bank failures. It's not about the big things. It's, a, it's often about the little tiny details that pile up over time. And as you just pointed out, Emil, we're 12, 13, running on 14 years later, and we still have the same problems. And the problem is that you can't fix it with just abundant bank reserves that pile up at certain banks. It's, it's really, you know, why is collateral such an issue? Because it prevents, if, if we have a shortage of collateral, it prevents people from getting into repo when they really need to get into repo. And if they can't get into repo and they can't go to the primary credit, then they start cutting back their own activities because they can never be in a situation where you can't settle at the end of the day because you're out of business. 
Jeff, let us now pivot away from 1980s television shows to endangered species. Just a typical making sense Eurodollar University episode. So here, part two, what are we going to talk about? We're going to talk about the endangered gazelle, which was last spotted in Las Vegas. Very confusing. I know there are no gazelles in Las Vegas, but you bring up a story uh, that uh, came around not too recently in Nevada, the endangered inflationary species gazelles. You posted it February 11th at Alhambra Partners. And you start out by making the obvious connection point that Nevada is in very difficult shape. Why? Because tourism, right? Tourism is so important to that economy. Therefore, its governor is looking for an alternative. What was the, what was the idea? The idea is a radical one, which I think the governor, I forget his name, but the governor said, look, we're in really bad shape here. And as you pointed out, I mean, Emil is exactly right. If your entire, your entire uh, state economy is predicated on tourism and gaming and, you know, pandemic restrictions have decimated pandemic and gaming. I think they said it's about a third of the state's budget comes from the sales tax due to tourism, a third of the entire budget. So yeah, they're in deep, deep trouble which the government said, look, we gotta we gotta go radical here because otherwise we're gonna have to cut in a massive amount of state spending and probably raise the, the risk of defaulting on muni bonds and all sorts of other bad consequences. And what they came up with though just kind of chills your blood. <laughs> what they said was we can't offer the normal incentives to attract new businesses to the state. And they want to attract these high-tech blockchain, uh, all the, you know, really new stuff, digital kind of stuff to the state because they believe that, you know, that's the future. We want, we want, to, we want to diversify our, our economic base, not necessarily just away from tourism, but into growing industries, for, uh, growing industries that we think, or at least what we think will be growing industries. But since we can't attract them with tax abatements because we don't have any, we can't afford to, we can't spend any money on infrastructure to help build their facility, whatever it is. So what we're going to do is we're going to allow these companies, so assuming they meet certain criteria, to basically set up their own fiefdoms. Not just, you know, hey, you're going to run your company here. You're going to run what is this, what will be treated as your own county. And that's really I mean, that's not the, I mean, the implications of that go beyond what we're going to talk about here. I mean, that's a whole complete separate discussion, whether we should have CEOs become sheriffs. It's hard. I don't, you know, the only times I've ever heard of anything like that was uh, in movies. Uh, the Tyrell Corporation in Blade Runner, the Umbrella Corporation in Resident Evil. This is the dystopian future uh, <laughs> where the corporation takes over the entire political system. Uh, and I would love to talk yeah, that, about that would be a really interesting discussion, wouldn't it? Well, you would be talking about philosophy and the ultimate yeah. issues of life. I would try to steer it towards Mila Jovich again in those pleather pants fighting zombies in the that the Umbrella Corporation unleashed. But that's where you do, you don't go there. Where you go instead is to make the point that what the governor was doing was trying to attract the big businesses because that's the only place where growth and economy can come from. But that's not how it should work, right? It shouldn't be that way. It should be the small businesses, but that's messy and you don't know if it's really going to work. So this is where the gazelle comes into it. Yeah. And to be fair to, to the Nevadans there, I mean, look, uh, this is, you don't have time to risk here. So you, they got to, they got to bet on something like a sure thing. And so it sounds like a sure thing is, 
And I think the requirement was you have to you invest 250 million straight away and then promise to invest another billion over the next 10 years. And so the question is, who's going to be able to do that? It's not somebody with a good idea, an innovator who hasn't developed a product or a service yet. It's established large companies who can go into the junk bond market at the very least and say, I have a crap product or, you know, at least I have an established firm and I can float a bond. And so we're favoring large companies in Nevada because, I mean, that makes sense. Nevada doesn't have time to wait for the next Bill Gates to come out of his garage and invent Microsoft all over again, right? But what we see is throughout economic history, especially American economic history, where does most economic potential growth come from? And it's, it's really hard to say, and it's really hard to find definitions and data for this stuff. But over time, and through you know, a lot of different scholarship, we I think a lot of people intuitively understand that a lot of economic growth comes from small companies becoming middle, middle-sized companies becoming large companies. And these are the gazelles that you know, this academic paper that was written in the mid-90s talked about. These are companies that start small with a really, really good idea or a really, really good improvement on an existing idea, and they're able to become large companies in a relatively short period of time. And making that leap from small to large, that's actually the secret to long-run, sustained economic growth. And I've pulled up a chart because, you, as you said, the data's not readily available regarding there's not a whole company. lot. There's not really a lot that you can say that this is this is absolutely how it happens. But if you think about the gazelle story and the way it's presented, it does make a lot of sense. And so now we think, well, if that makes a lot of sense, can we find some data that at least corroborates or at least appears to corroborate the idea? And so you went to the Bureau of Labor Statistics and you have data from 1998 to 2020 by uh, small, medium, and large companies. And I remember in the 90s, the boom times, when everything was great, I remember specifically uh, authorities or the media saying, you know, most of our growth, most of employment comes from the small business. And I remember thinking, that's fantastic. I love that. That makes sense. But look what happened after the dot-com boom, and more importantly, after Ross Perot's predicted outsourcing to China after 2000, we see the large employee uh, company taking off and the small one, what, falling. Yeah, and it's and then, then 2008, right? And that's really where we're getting to our point here at Eurodollar University is how does an illiquid, dysfunctional monetary system potentially impact this, this specific dynamic? Because as we've talked about before with the interest rate fallacy, there is a a, a complete, a, a really clear uh, bias toward the large firm, because in an in an era where money is tight, you're going to always prefer the most liquid and safe. And look, the mom and pop, the Bill Gates in his garage is not a safe investment. They may have the best idea, the best fundamentals, but you're not going to book that loan and put it on your books. You're going to instead go buy the Apple bond that, that's, that's uh, been issued at 15 basis points over treasuries because that's what you'll do. You'll favor the large firms, even junk bonds, um, because it's a big company issuing lower quality, lower quality credit. It's still a liquid instrument. And so you favor the, liquidity, the liquid stuff, which means that you're going to unfavor the illiquid, which is traditional lending into the smaller and medium-sized businesses. 
So the interest rate fallacy, we always bring it up whenever we discuss Milton Friedman, but I'm aware of at least one quote that was earlier, and you know this one, Jeff, you've referenced it before, 1907, Nut Wicksell, quote, in good times when trade is brisk, the rate of profit is high, and what is a great consequence is generally expected to remain high. In periods of depression, it is low, and it is expected to remain low. The rate of interest on money follows, no doubt, the same course. And so if we extend that view into 2008 moving forward, what we find is that using the BLS data, it's just that kind of a thing. The, the, even though big, big firms had to fire a lot of workers, small firms had to fire a lot more workers. And it wasn't just because you know small firms took more of the revenue hit. It was because, largely because a lot of these firms had to survive in a liquidity environment where they couldn't find any. They couldn't, you know, uh, even though a lot of big companies had to go to the Federal Reserve and beg them to buy their commercial paper, small mom and pop shops couldn't even go to the Federal Reserve and beg them to do anything. And so they had to take more extreme actions in terms of their managing their costs and liquidity, which meant firing more workers proportionally than large firms did. And then if we extend that to the, to the other side of the recovery, essentially, again, the environment where it's hard to find financing, you need financing to grow. You're a small business. You even, even, no matter how good of an idea you have, you're a small business and the banks say, we have no credit for you. We're, we're full up from all the Apple bonds we just bought. You know, in a recent uh, podcast introduction, I was going over uh, some brief moments of lost knowledge the world's first history, a world history, uh, the loss at Alexandria, the Library of Alexandria. And uh, it was very interesting. One such scholar in the, oh gosh, the 16th, 17th century was lamenting this incredible lost knowledge. And in sort of a wistful uh, sadness, he put together a book, The Lost Museum, of all the things that were lost uh, through time. Uh, what Hannibal, what kind of vinegar Hannibal used to break rocks up during his uh, way through the Alps, uh, Pandora's box, and what was in Pandora's box, all sorts of things like that. And of course, it's all counterfactual. We don't know. And that's what you mentioned here in this article is we don't know what we've lost, right? The losses are likely immeasurable, but also unknowable, what amazing discoveries, what amazing businesses, breakthroughs might have occurred in this uh, half a generation now of uh, terrible economic growth where liquidity is not extended to the small mom and pop. Yeah, and it goes beyond that too, right? Emil, we're talking about you know, getting the stock market involved. It, it's really you know, big companies that have lots of, lots of funds, they can definitely, they can borrow, issue bonds to borrow funds so that they can repurchase their shares one other, one other thing they also like to do is buy out their competitors, right? Mm. And so they have endless access to credit that the small and medium-sized businesses don't. And therefore, they can identify any potential threats in their area and say, look, that small business over there in you know, Nevada, <laughs> just to use an example, they, they've got a product that may end up threatening our business. But we can find funds easily and we'll just make a, we'll make a ridiculously high offer that the, the business owner can't refuse. And they'll sell out to us because they don't really have any other alternative. And so going back to the BLS data, what you see is post-2008, according to their numbers, 
the the number of American employees working at small businesses, which are defined, which will define here as between one and ninety nine employees, the number of employees at those business those those type businesses has basically stagnated since 2008. Yeah, it fell and then came back a little bit, but there's only a, a, a less than 1% more working at small businesses in 2020 than there was in 2007. And so part of that is small businesses haven't been able to grow. And I think a good part of it also is that a lot of, a lot of bigger businesses that have access to credit and bond, especially the bond market, have been able to purchase the, the best, best ones before they become gazelles, you know, absorb your competitor before they're able to put you out of business. And yes, that's a long run consideration, but that's really what happens when in these periods where, you know, interest rates are low because money is tight and therefore the market is favoring only the liquid safe uh, credits. Jeff, we're going to move on to our next article, but is there anything that we didn't cover that you wanted to bring up? No, and I think it's just, you know, you put it really well, Emil, that, oh. you know, these hidden costs, counterfactuals, it's really difficult, you know, and, and I think, uh, you know, we talk about lost productivity and things like that, which I think we'll get into in the next segment, but um, it's, 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 it's sort of like, how do we connect the dots? What we do know is that the economy isn't what it used to be. And we can't really, you know, most people in the public can't really put their fingers on it. And then, you know, you and I come along with a monetary story and it's like, well, how does the two things go together? And so all of this hidden counterfactual stuff that's really hard to piece together if you don't really have the framework or the, the, the ability to interpret what's really happening. And that's really what we're trying to do here is to put some of these hidden pieces together so that you can see that we have, you know, what we think is a very coherent, comprehensive story. And more cynically, Jeff, is that the people in charge want to remain in charge. They don't have the interests yeah. of their profession or the nation or their, or humanity, you know, that's what statesmen and stateswomen should have. But we don't have that. We have politicians who are in technocratic posts who want to retain their position, their reputation, and therefore don't say, hey, there's a problem. We need to fix this. They say, everything's fine. The economy is running hot. Especially when the problem is in my own backyard. Oh, well, right? yeah. That's, you're going to do everything you can to avoid Making that kind of a mission. And so as they avoid ever saying, oh, yeah, I'm the problem, you know, we, we, we have the lack of answers and the lack of, econ lack of economic growth and efficiency. Jeff, for part three here, we're going to do a little bit of a potpourri because I've really liked some of the graphs you've put together recently, but they're in several several of your articles. So we're just going to skip to the graphs. I'm going to ask you to explain what's going on to them, showcase them to the audience, and then you kind of give the overall message of you know, the article. So the first one we're going to go to is uh, the cautionary tale of undocumented insanity. So Jeff, just tell us a little bit about Japan and uh, inflation. I'll pull up this graph that I really liked. Yeah, it's really Japan insanity is that this idea that we should ignore the Japanese example because it's just Japanese. That, you know, when the Japanese do QE and screw it up, it doesn't work. It must be because the Japanese screwed up QE. Not that QE is flawed, but that the Japanese execution of all of these programs is flawed. And when you actually t take a step back and look beyond QE, what you find is not just quantitative easing. We keep borrowing every single idea that has been pioneered and tested in Japan, including something called money finance fiscal expansion, which is really nothing more than 
what we're talking about right now with the Biden administration. So it's the idea that, look, we're just going to ignore what jet what goes on in Japan because we're going to assume that what goes on in Japan was only about Japan when, in fact, we keep repeating their mistakes and also their results. We're going to show four graphs here. Just tell us what they are, and then the punchline will be the latest inflation numbers, and then we'll move on to our next article. So what is this This is nothing person? more than standard neo-Keynesianism, which is that when you have a recession, which is a recession is nothing more than a temporary deviation from potential. Milton Friedman calls it his plucking model. There are other versions of it out there that the neo-Keynesians use. The idea is that you fill up aggregate demand with government spending and loose monetary policy to sort of fill in those troughs, right? That's really what we're doing. That's what the picture shows is we fill in the trough. However, the next chart here, you are at risk of doing too much. You could overfill the trough if the government spends too much or the central bank becomes too accommodative, and that leads to inflation. We have, we have too much of a rescue because it's more than the size of the def deficit that it's facing. Therefore, we have an inflationary fire breakout, which we don't want because that's, that's just as bad as, as the, uh, uh, as the uh, recessionary trough to begin with. And but uh, for the uh, podcasting audience, Jeff added a, a delightful uh, flame graphic to the dollar. So I love that. I love that. Okay. So yeah, now it's way too hot. <laughs> However, what if we're not in a recession? What if we've experienced a permanent shock, which is something we talked about before? How mainstream econometric models have said there's no, no never a possible permanent shock. No unit roots are allowed. What what Bizarre. if we do have one? What if we end up with a permanent shock? Well, then you shovel money into the hole, but it's not really a hole. It's a lower level of output. You're not creating inflation because potential hasn't really changed. It's only the, the uh, economic output that has. And so you're not, really, you're not really shoveling or filling up the troughs. You're just shoveling money into an, un, you know, an open pit, an open deflationary pit, I should say. Right, Jeff. You got to tell the audience that's just listening. What are you shoveling into that pit now? <laughs> yes, the, the fiscal spending, the, the chart before this one, the fiscal spending actually shoves real dollars in terms of you know, tax cuts, spending programs, shovel-ready projects, whatever it is. They're at least, the, the, the federal government is at least sending money into the real economy. What does the Federal Reserve send into the real economy? What do they use to try to fill in the troughs? Well, it's just rainbows and unicorns because there's no money in quantitative easing, as we talked about before, even in the, in the nuts and bolts and in details. And so it's really about getting people to feel happy so that they fill in their own trough, right? If you believe that the Federal Reserve is being irresponsible, inflationary irresponsible, then you'll fill in the trough yourself because you think the price of everything's going to rise quickly. And so I'm going to spend today what I would have spent tomorrow. Jeff? The latest consumer price index is the price of everything rising quickly. No, <laughs> in fact, uh, when we look at the CPI, the latest CPI numbers, especially the core rates of CPI. Well, let's start with the headline rate. The headline rate was one point four zero percent year over year. That's the unadjusted number, the not not seasonally adjusted, mm -hmm. and that's up from one point three six percent in December despite the fact that oil prices are up significantly higher, as are many commodities. Hmm. So despite the fact that oil is up, which contributes directly to gasoline prices, and of course we all know that gasoline contributes a lot to the CPI bucket, as well as consumers' expectations and perceptions about inflation, 
yet there was only four, four one hundredths of a percent increase in the headline rate. And the reason why is you look at the core rates that strip out food and energy, we have some of the lowest core rates of inflation in the entire series history for the CPI. By, by that, you mean to make it specific, not only is it the lowest since last June, core inflation has only been less in just 9% of all months dating back to 1960. You looked at another kind of a core rate without shelter, is that right? Yeah, the service, the service is part of the economy that excludes the, the rent of shelter, which gets thrown into services. So we're just looking at services itself. Um, what you see is that it's the first percentile. It's, you know, I think there's only been three or four months total. And data goes back to 1984 where inflation has been this low. And really the point we're trying to make here is yeah. money printing, Federal Reserve, rainbows and unicorns don't create the monetary environment conducive to monetary inflation. And if you want to put it into fiscal terms, are we seeing the federal government fill in the trough or are they just shoveling money into the permanent shock, lower level of output, uh, open pit? And so the, the CPI numbers, at least up to this point, and we're 11 months into this thing now. January 2021 is 11 months since, since March. And what we're seeing is Things are getting worse, at least in terms of lack of pricing power. We, we talked about this before, the rebound from the initial shock has sort of tapered off, if not died out completely. So we're not getting any additional economic momentum and growth outside of potentially you know, government payments, um, which are not substitutes for real economic jobs and wealth. So we're not seeing any pricing pressure show up, which is not surprising. You just, th that last point, the government can't fill in what's missing. And so we're gonna to segue to another article of yours where we're gonna be looking at consumer credit where the government is filling in consumer credit in the United States for a segment of the population. But if you take that out, then we see the true picture. What am I referencing? It's an article, Permanent Jobs and Permanent Job Losses, Alhambra Partners posted on the second note, the February 8th. February 8th is when it was posted. Jeff, just a little bit of background. I'm going to pull up the graph that I, that I really love from this article. Yeah. It's, look, consumer credit is, you know, you're talking about a specific segment. It's the government is, they took over the student loan market in 2008, late 2008, early 2009. Essentially, What's called consumer credit, at least as far as these statistics are concerned from the Federal Reserve, it's really not consumer credit, it's student loan credit. And so you take that out and look at just what what's going on in consumer credit, and there's barely more in you know the peak in early 2020 than there had been in 2008, which is consistent with you know what we talk about all the time, the lack of liquidity, high risk, banks not willing to expand their balance sheets. And here we see in consumer credit outside of the federal government, that's absolutely the case. And of course, the other side of that is since the federal government has gotten involved in the student loan market, because it's a non-economic uh, institution that doesn't care about economic factors like you know, value, it just extends student loans basically to anybody who wants them. The price of education, especially higher education in the United States has simply gone through the roof, even though economic fundamentals would imply costs of education decreasing by a significant amount. So, so we have two sides of the same problem. So we're looking at a graph, 1990 to 2020, 
and shows consumer credit in the United States, who extends credit to consumers in the United States. And from 1993, I'm eyeballing it, Jeff. I'm going to say that we've got a slope of 35%, right, up until 2008. But as you just pointed out, it's the federal government that is really going to come into the picture after 2008. So if we took out that student credit, student loan extension from the feds, I would say I'm going to call it a 30% incline, a slope. But then from 2011 to 2020, if we're looking apples to apples, I don't know, Jeff, I'm going to call it half. I'm going to say we're only increasing at about 15%. And it's a point I'm trying to make here is uh, what you often write about. We live in a nonlinear world where growth is already baked in to the baseline. And therefore, even though we have 15%, I'm not, that's the wrong number, but you know what I'm saying? It's inclining at 15%-ish. That's not good enough. Unless, Jeff, let me ask you this question. Maybe it is good enough because I'm looking at the beginning of that graph. And from 1990 to 1993, it was a flat line. There wasn't any credit being extended. So, Jeff, kind of what is the right answer here? What amount of growth would be good enough? Well, it's not necessarily a right answer or wrong answer. It's what, what makes up the the fundamentals of any economy. In the 1990s, economy transitioned into a consumer-led uh, system where, you know, we very much depended upon consumers buying services and, and goods. And so what the federal government has done since 2008 is, again, the, the Keynesian stimulus idea filling in the troughs of aggregate demand. Well, it doesn't matter where we spend money as long as we spend money or loan money in this case. And so what they've essentially done is substituted loans for students going to universities, not really doing anything, investing in themselves is, is what most students would say, but that's not, that's not something that, it's not an economic, uh, it's not an economic process that happens immediately at the expense of banks who are no longer extending consumer credit to consumers who then are not borrowing to spend today. So at the very least, at the very least, what we're saying is that the government is investing in children who will bear fruit 10 years or you know, somewhere down the road at the expense of economic activity today that isn't happening. And of course, as we know, as we hear all the time about the, the problems in higher education, are we really efficiently allocating resources into that sector in lieu of this consumer economy that doesn't happen anyway? And so the government aggregate demand doesn't matter where you spend the money. Well, yeah, maybe it does. So even if the government is coming in and, and throwing cash at, at universities and colleges, it doesn't really help our economic situation because our economic situation just has been impaired by the unwillingness of the banking system to extend credit, at least on the same terms as it had in, during the previous era. So if we don't have credit coming into the economy as we previously did, maybe we can count on a demographic boom to lift the nominal economy. But, uh, you know, demographics don't turn around on a dime. What we could count on may be productivity. That's a graph that you drew in a recent article, a couple of them. And the one I'm going to uh, highlight for everyone is called Old Numbers Show Us Why There Will Be New Checks. And in this article, you talk about jolts and productivity. I'm going to pull up the, the productivity graph. But Jeff, if you wanted to share anything about the latest job opening and job hire numbers, go ahead and let us know. 
Well, job openings were basically flat, not really. They rose a little bit from the, the previous month, which was November. Jolts are months behind the payroll reports. We're talking about December. While the hiring rate collapsed, it fell by about 300,000 going off the top of my head, which is not a surprise because we knew the payroll report wasn't just negative in December, it was revised to, a, to a substantially about the same level of negative. So we knew that the labor market was in trouble ending ending last year. So that wasn't really much of a surprise. I think the bigger surprise is the fact that it hasn't been better since then or before then. Uh, but when we talk about potential and economic potential, I mean, um, what we're measuring here is the BEA gets together with the BLS and says, this is what we say that the, the economy has worked in terms of hours. This is what you say is in terms of private output taken from the GDP numbers. And we're trying to figure out how efficient the labor force is because productivity and efficiency is a key ingredient to economic supply and potential, the supply side, as you, as you mentioned, Emil. And what we find is that really going back to the middle of the last decade or the middle of the decade before the early 2000s, productivity kind of fell off and stayed off. And the only time we ever see productivity rise is when we get into these deep recessions where companies lay off millions upon millions of workers. Now, that's a natural economic process that's supposed to be short-lived. It's not supposed to be the only way to generate productivity because that's the, that's the, that's the way you get a labor force that, that uh, stuck in a permanent shock. And so this graph goes back to 1949. And what we experienced after 2009, whew, that's this essentially awful. A decade without any productivity growth and economists in particular who can't figure out why this has been the case. And so they've come up with all sorts of explanations for it, or at least potential explanations for it, that essentially blame us. You know, it's lazy Americans who won't go back to school, drug, ad drug addiction, fentanyl, all this stuff. Yeah, no, that's standard fare if you don't want to take responsibility. Jeff, you also mentioned, though, that you're a little bit worried about the rebound here, right? We're supposed to have a very sharp rebound in productivity yeah, when these mass layoffs take place. Yeah, it's, it, businesses lay off workers, not to generate productivity. Gen productivity is sort of the signal of what they're trying to do, which is match revenues with costs, right? At some point you fire more workers than you need to, then you know that the recession is over with, right? You've cut too many workers. And so the signal is rising productivity means that we expect recovery to begin from there, which means businesses will start to um, rehire workers, especially rapidly. And that leads to what we call recovery. Um, what we've seen in 2020, however, is that, yeah, we had big productivity uh, rebound in Q3, and then it sort of faltered in Q4, which is consistent with the labor data, which shows us that, you know, we aren't, into it, we aren't even close to the recovery mechanics that we had that were unsatisfactory in 2009. And getting back to what we said before in the earlier segment, this lack of productivity across, you know, the last 15 years or so sort of matches up pretty well with our gazelle argument, right? Where small businesses struggle and small businesses are where we generate economic supply potential. That's where we generate, you know, labor force absorption where businesses are that become that are start out small, become medium and get to be big. That's where lots of our, that's where most of our labor gains come from. At least our permanent labor gains. Oh, I forgot to uh, stop sharing the screen. All right, Jeff. Our last potpourri article, Upcoming Bill Cliff Refunding Recalls Rerun Reverse Repo. <gasps> Jeff, you yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't resist the alliteration. <laughs> you 
could have warned me. He could have warned Sorry me. Sorry about that. Sorry about that. Uh, I love the graph. I mean, there's a, this, I don't know, maybe we should have done a whole segment on this article. I think there's a good stuff. We did talk about treasury. Yeah, we talked about bills a lot before, so it's, it's really just kind of, where are we now? This is a really good one, folks. Uh, February 8th at Alhambra Partners, if you have a chance. I love these graphs about the mean, median, and max. I'm just going to pull up one of them. And if there's anything you wanted to share from this article with the, with the audience, uh, please, please let us know. Yeah, we're talking about bill auctions. And so there's, you know, a bill auction, like most things, is not as simple as it sounds. There's no single price. It's, you know, dealers, non-dealers, competitive, non-competitive bids, all sorts of things. So you have a range of, of prices that the Treasury sells its bills to the, to the, into the primary markets for. And what we find is that, or at least what's important to me, is beyond uh, the last six weeks or so where bill yields have fallen sharply, if you look back at it, bill yields at auction have been falling really since September and October. So that indicates rising demand for bills for some reason that has entered 2021, especially lately, it has met with uh, what we know is going to be restricted supply. The, uh, tr the, the latest quarterly treasury funding statement, which was released last week, said that the two of the cash management bill tenors are going to be eliminated entirely, removing about 55 billion in supply from the marketplace, which is one reason why you see the, the prices of those bills go through the roof. But again, this this doesn't this isn't this didn't just happen in January and February of 2021. It's been building for months. Jeff, I think another very important point to make here, uh, and I feel like we're picking on the Federal Reserve here, but you know, okay, the point here this you make <laughs> it's the reverse repo rate which was put into place as a floor. Folks, if you've been following the show or Jeff's work, you know when the, when the Fed says floor, sometimes they mean ceiling, sometimes they mean floor. It's hard to know. And even when it is a floor, the graphs that we were just showing, Jeff, we're seeing some rates, money rates go below that floor. Just, a, just briefly, what is the reverse repo? Why should it act as a floor? What did the Fed expect? And yet what's happening in the real marketplace? Well, the reverse repo is, as the name implies, the Federal Reserve taking the opposite trade in a repo. So if I'm lending cash into the repo market, that's a repo. So from the Fed's perspective, if they're the one borrowing cash, they're doing a reverse repo. And as ridiculous as it sounds, you are lending cash to the Federal Reserve. Now the Federal Reserve doesn't need the cash. And it has collateral because it has stuff, it has securities in the SOMA portfolio. All it's really doing is giving you an alternative that says, I'm going to lend to you, I'm going to, I'm going to borrow from you at this rate. So why would you, why would you lend to anybody else less than that rate, right? Because if I can get it, you know, if the Fed is paying 2% in reverse repo, why would I lend to anybody else at less than 2%? It's a Fed. It's the least risky option. It's collateralized. I get, I get a treasury bill and it's collateral from the reverse repo. So why would it not be a floor? Nobody would ever lend below that, that floor. And that's really theoretically how the reverse repo is supposed to work. You would never lend at a rate less than what the Fed is paying. Now, the, currently, the ver reverse repo is at set at the, uh, the lower end of the federal funds range, which is at zero. And so we see bill yields begin to, to, to trickle their way down towards zero. They haven't penetrated into the negative yet, but they were negative last year and they were deeply negative during the crisis period. 
But we have seen throughout history, including recent history, late 2017, for example, where we see treasury bill yields fall below the reverse repo floor. And that's indicative of the same kind of thing, right? Why would you lend to the U.S. government, even for a four-week term, at a rate less than what you could get from the Federal Reserve in a, in a reverse repo, collateralized lending? So from your, your perspective, it is a repo. Why would you not repo with the Fed at, at a rate that's here in, instead of buying a Treasury bill that's less than that? And so theoretically, it shouldn't ever happen. But yet, it not only did it happen, it, it happened on a regular basis leading up to what we call Eurodollar number four. And so you're worried that this signals just uh, tightness and that not all is well. well is that right? Why would you do Fragile. that, right? So that's, we, let's, let's ask that question. Let's investigate the question. Why would you buy a treasury bill such that it, the price of the treasury bill leaves you with a smaller uh, equivalent yield return than you could get doing a reverse repo with the Fed. And the answer is there must be some other use for that treasury bill that is so valuable you're willing to you're willing to take a, a lower return on it than you could get otherwise. And of course we're talking about treasury bill, utility, what other thing could it be used for? We know what we're talking about here. We're talking about collateral and uh, balance sheet tools and that kind of a thing. I don't know how to end this segment, Jeff. How should we end it? That was the end of our poker. We covered a lot of ground there, I think. And so uh, everybody catch their breath. And uh, yes, treasury bills, inflation, all these other things. And, you know, I think, you know, it's it's really about the story that's 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 being put together, I think, in the mainstream is that, you know, look at commodity prices. We talk about copper, oil, all these things are flying. Inflation is coming. It's being unleashed as we speak. And yet it's January, now February of 2021. And we're observing, first of all, there is no inflation. There hasn't been. We're, inflation's at the lowest rates possible. And yes, I know people hate the CPI and all this index, but you got to pay attention to the correlations when they're low, at least. When they're low, that does corroborate signs that we see the nothing but trouble and bad economy, all that stuff. And then underneath, we, look, we go to the bill yields and say, something's been going on there for a couple of months, too, that isn't very reflationy at all. Where it's, you know, higher demand for bills such that now that we're restricting supply, it's leading to a big increase in price that's heading toward the reverse repo floor. And that's not a very good signal either. And we go back to 2017, wrapping this up. When we saw bill yields fall and stay below the reverse repo floor, it was kind of a warning flag that said, this is a fragile, disinflationary, getting into a trouble period where not necessarily crash, but you go back into these euro dollar squeezes or these global dollar shortages, which becomes the opposite of inflation and reflation, it becomes another deflationary period. Fragility is present. I think that would be a good way to summarize it. Yeah, Jeff, that's what we're saying, fragility. Well, we endeavored to make it a, a nice, short, snappy show, and it's definitely been our longest one by far. I will talk to you again next week. I had a great time, of course. All right, take care, Emil. 